Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is God's word. Let us pray. God, thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have now to hear from your word, God, and we ask that you would speak. God, we pray that our hearts and our minds and our eyes would be opened to what you have for us, that we would hear, that we would receive, God, that we would listen and obey what you have given to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When we think about invitations and offers, uh, there are two especially busy times of year. I think the first time is in the spring when a lot of wedding invitations start to go out. Uh, we had a lot of weddings this year. I think we had five weddings this year in our church. And I know some of you had double digit weddings to attend this year. And I know of some people who had to actually decline uh, and were not able to go to every wedding that they were invited to because there was just so much going on. And whether it's an invitation to something as significant as a wedding, which is a one-time event, or that yearly birthday party for your cousin that lives three hours away that you can't always make it to, uh, there is a sense of both excitement uh, to be included in that and a sense of obligation uh, maybe to attend and then also to bring a gift. Uh, speaking of gifts, many of you are probably feeling that crunch at this time of year. This is kind of a crazy time of year. All of the offers that are out there, uh, all of the marketers who are doing their best to try to convince you that you need all of these different things right now, it can feel a little bit overwhelming. Uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday deals galore. Uh, my mom had asked us what we wanted for Christmas this past week and uh, actually, on Friday, I went on Amazon and I found two sweaters that I wanted and I sent her uh, the links to those and uh, she wasn't at home at the time, but she got home a couple hours later. She said, oh, the, the Black Friday deal. It was one of those like, you know, the deal ran out at midnight, but they actually sold out uh, before she before even, you know, it got to that time. And so she had to 
like say, oh, I got to find something else. So um, you're, you know, we're all kind of experiencing that, like, oh, we got to get this now. And, and as we think about these things, as we think about invitations and these offers, I think there's a couple of interesting dynamics at play. I think, as I said, the invitations, they remind us of the sacredness of these events like weddings and the joy of celebrating with others, the importance of, of gathering together like a birthday party. The Black Friday and the Cyber Monday offers, they play on our sense of urgency. We got to get it while it's hot. We got to get it while supplies last. And if you miss out, it's gone forever, right? And I think in both of these cases, there is a real sense of the fear of missing out on something that's important. That if you don't attend the event or if you don't click on that buy now button, you will not experience the fullness of the satisfaction that is promised. And while there can be a lot of unhealthy motivations in each of these areas, I think it does point us to something deeper, something that is hardwired into us by our creator, but something that we all experience that sin and the fall have marred and have led us down the types of paths that we often find ourselves walking. And the encouragement that we find as we read through the scriptures is that we are not alone in our struggle against sin, right? We are not alone in our struggle to find our significance and our satisfaction in things that are external, right? Things that are other than what the Lord has for us. Sometimes, though, in the scriptures, the encouragement is in the form of those who believe God, who trust God in the face of tremendous trials and persecutions, like as, as in Hebrews chapter 11, we have this positive encourage, positive and encouraging, I'm not, not, not talking about Caleb, this positive encouragement, right, from uh, the saints who have gone before us, and that's something that we should look to, but other times, the encouragement is actually in the form of a negative, it's in the sense of don't be like so-and-so. And we actually need both of those reminders. We need reminders that we should emulate certain types of people, and there are certain types of people that we shouldn't be like. Where we find ourselves right now in Hebrews is an example of that latter sense, the negative example to not be like a certain group of people. Last week, James preached from chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, and we looked at that quote from King David in Psalm 95 that reminded those in his generation to listen to God and to not harden their hearts like those in the days of Moses and Joshua. So David, a long time ago, was looking, he was looking back, right? He was saying, don't be like those a long time ago. And it was a reminder of this reminder that David gave in Psalm 95 was a reminder of two specific incidents that the recipients of Hebrews would have been very familiar with. So James mentioned them last week. He didn't really get into them too much. Uh, I'm going to mention them a little bit because they're a little more related to what is going on here in chapter four. The first one is Exodus chapter 17, something that we're probably pretty familiar with. After the crossing of the Red Sea, God provides manna for his people in the wilderness. But then the people start to grumble against Moses because there's no water. They quarreled with Moses and they asked Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? They start to say, we had everything we needed back there, right? And, and they're like, they've been delivered. God has saved them. They've crossed the Red Sea and they're like, oh, we want to go back, right? Because we don't have any water here. And after everything that God had done, it says that they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So they're questioning Moses. They're questioning his leadership. They're saying, is God really among us? Are you... God's man that brought us out or, or what's going on here. 
The second instance is in Numbers chapter 14. This is very similar dynamics here. This is after the spies came back from going to the land of Canaan. They were there for 40 days. They were told to spy out the land. They came back and they said, oh, there's giants in the land. It's too scary. We can't do it. And Caleb alone stood up and said, let's go. We can do this. We can take the land. However, the people listened to the spies instead of Caleb, and they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And kind of, again, the same dynamic that we saw in Exodus chapter 17. They said, let's go back to Egypt. We had it better there. Let's go back. Let's choose a new leader, and let's go back to Egypt. The result, as you probably know, is that for every day of those 40 days, God made them wander for a year in the wilderness. So they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness and until, until an entire generation would die out and would not enter into the land of Canaan. They would not enter into God's rest. So that's, the, that's what's going on with this quote of Psalm 95 in chapter 3, and then we see it a little bit here in chapter 4. This is a really helpful context for us as we consider what is at stake here and what it meant for the original audience here of Hebrews and what it means for us today. So our text today in chapter 4 is an application of chapter 3, 7 through 19. In other words, how are we to live, how are we to respond in light of what happened to Israel in Exodus 17 and in Numbers 14? That's what verses 16 through 19 in chapter 3 are pointing to. So if you look at the end of chapter 3 there, it says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses. That's talking about the incident in Exodus 17. Verse 17, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Now, this is speaking of the incident in Numbers 14, where they didn't agree with what Caleb said, and they said, we're not going to enter the land. Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So entering God's rest is the issue that is at stake here. And the Israelites of old are being held up as a negative example for the audience of Hebrews who are facing similar temptations to not enter into God's true rest. There are, there's an issue at stake here where, where they are being tempted to go another way to act like the Israelites of old in Exodus 17 and Numbers 14. So that is why our author here is addressing them in this way and using this example. As we've already seen and, we've, and as you see as you read in Hebrews, Hebrews is full of therefores and fors at the beginning of many of the sentences and many of the sections. Hebrews is challenging because it is one long continuous argument that Jesus is better, that it keeps, that keeps growing and building upon the previous parts and, and then building this overall argument. So we have to read this carefully, and we have to consider the context. So as we read it, as, as we preach through it, uh, this, is, this is challenging because we can't just isolate one individual section of Hebrews to like preach some favorite thing. Like next week, we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, very famous, uh, well-known verse about the, the word of God, the sword uh, of the spirit, or the, the word of God being like a, a two-edged sword. And, you know, we could just take that and just preach a one-off sermon about how we need God's word. And we do, right? But we can't just 
pick that verse out and, and isolate it from everything else that's going on. And we'll see next week how that ties into what we're talking about this week. So Hebrews is a challenge and we have to be able to, to, to think what has come before us. And so for us, and you know, we come up here and like I'm giving all this background of what we've been looking at. It might feel like, oh, you keep saying the same thing over and over, but we have to do that, right? We have to remind us of where we're at and, and where this argument is coming from. So our context forces us to ask the question in chapter four, verse one, what is the therefore, therefore, right? We start off this new chapter with the word therefore, but we have to understand what that's there for. As I mentioned, it does follow the negative example of the disobedient and unbelieving Israelites that we saw in chapter three, those who failed to enter God's rest. And as we can pretty easily anticipate the exhortation and the encouragement to us is going to be then to enter God's rest, right? Don't be like them. Don't be disobedient and not enter God's rest. You need to, James talked last week about listening and believing, right? You need to listen to God. You need to believe God. We need to obey God and we need to enter into his rest. So the title of the message today is walk through the open door. And we're going to consider three things following, we're going to follow the therefores in verse 1, in verse 6, and in verse 11. I'm going to frame all three of these parts this way. So if you're taking notes, it's kind of going to be one main phrase, and then each of the subpoints are going to, or each of the main points are going to follow underneath that phrase. So the phrase is, let us walk through the open door into God's rest. Let us walk through the open door into God's rest. And then there's going to be three things. It's going to be by and then by doing something, okay? So the first thing, let us walk through the open door into God's rest by fearing God and believing the good news. Now, in the original language here, in chapter 4, verse 1, the first word, which we should notice, not it doesn't show up in the English. In the English, it's actually in the in the second clause, but in the original language, the first word is the word phobeo, which we get our English word phobia, okay? This is the word fear, and it's, it's placed at the front of this sentence for emphasis. Let us fear lest we should fail to reach or enter God's rest. So the, the very emphasis right here starting off is let us fear. Now, generally speaking, fear is an appropriate motivator in the Christian life, but we do need to properly understand it. It's not fear in the sense of being afraid of God like a child is afraid of the dark or like we might be afraid of a tornado or hurricanes. There is a positive reverence for God that we often talk about when we talk about fear. But interestingly here, uh, the fear is not positive. Uh, the fear is actually pointing to something not to do. It's saying, don't miss out. Don't fail to reach God's rest. You should be afraid of not entering God's rest. Let us be afraid. Let us, let us fear so that we don't do that. But the way to not miss out positively is to fear God. It's to fear him in the right way, which is certainly implied as the wilderness generation who failed to enter God's rest is considered. They didn't fear God appropriately, and they failed to enter his rest. So our, our author here reminds the recipients of this letter and us today that the promise of entering God's rest, as we see in verse 1, it still stands. 
He's saying the door is still open. Walk through it. While this promise still stands, while God's rest is still enterable, you need to walk through the door and enter into it. Don't walk past that door and say, well, that's a nice open door standing right before me that God has put there. I think maybe I'll keep walking and see if there's a nicer door down a little bit farther. Or maybe I'll circle back around after I've lived my life and done what I've wanted to do, and then I'll come back and walk through God's door. I know I've shared this story before, I think probably from the pulpit. Um, when I was in college, I uh, lived in the dorms, lived in Whitehall, and uh, one day my friend Jimmy and I came back. It was during the middle of the day. I don't even remember what we were doing, maybe coming back from the dining hall. And, and there were some girls who were in my friend's room sitting down. They all had their Bibles out. I was not a Christian at the time. Uh, they had their Bibles out, and they were part of the Bible study in the dorm. And, and they were talking to my friend, uh, my friend Jimmy and Derek. And, and these guys were like, oh, man, like, you know, we need to start reading our Bibles and we need to like really get serious about God and, and me and me and uh, Jimmy or sorry, it was, it was Mike, my friend Mikey and Derek were the two guys in the room. And then uh, my friend Jimmy and I were like, whatever, you guys are crazy. We went back to my room and and I remember saying to Jimmy, I said, you know, I'll I'll get serious about God when I'm older, like when I'm married and I have a family and I need to like, you know, get my act together, then I will get serious about my faith. Well, I ate those words uh, a few months later <laughs> as uh, someone else shared the gospel with me. But, uh, but the point is, don't wait, right? Don't wait around. Don't say, well, I'll, I'll get there when I want to get there. The door is open now to enter into God's rest. We need to enter into it now before it's too late. In verse 2, then, the wilderness generation is held up again as a negative example. And there may be a bit of a wordplay here as the word for promise in verse 1 and the word for good news in verse 2 sound very similar uh, in the Greek. The promises of God concerning rest for Israel and the good news that was preached to them and to us are ultimately the same message. However, it says that they were not understood by that wilderness gener generation because they did not believe. They were not united by faith. And that was the reason that they did not enter God's rest. We see in 319, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So we are to walk through the open door of God's rest by fearing God and by believing the good news. And we're told then in verse 3 that there is a present reality of rest for those of us who have believed. For we who have believed enter that rest. And we saw this in our assurance of pardon from Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Again, as I talked with the kids, rest for your souls is the key phrase here. This isn't a promise of physical rest, or of complete rest from the burdens of this life, but that Jesus will carry our burdens, and that he will give us rest if we come to him. This is the invitation to walk through the open door. This is the free offer of the gospel. 
Don't go looking for rest for your weary soul in any other place because Jesus alone is the one that can give you that rest. Now, the second half of verse three through verse five remind us that God's rest from his work of creation on the seventh day points us to a rest that is greater than the promised rest from enemies in the land of Canaan. The goal has always been an ultimate rest for our souls that can only be found by faith in him. Therefore, let us walk through the open door into God's rest by fearing God and by believing the good news. Again, don't say like I foolishly did in my dorm room that day. I'll get serious about the things of God when I'm older. Do it now. That's what the next section is focused on. As we see that we are to walk through the open door of God into God's rest by recognizing the opportunity and understanding what true rest is. Again, by recognizing the opportunity and understanding what true rest is. Verse 6 starts off, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. In other words, the door is still open and not everyone who will go through it has yet gone through it. It still remains for some to open it, to, to go through. And then again, there is a contrast with the unbelieving wilderness generation reminding our original audience and us today not to be disobedient and unbelieving and to recognize that today is the day. Again, don't wait until tomorrow. Don't put off until tomorrow what can be done today, especially when the eternal state of your soul is at stake. That's why we must understand what true rest is. And that's why verses 8 through 10 are so important. Our author points us back to Joshua. This is interesting. I mean, Joshua is a pretty key figure in the Old Testament. He's only mentioned twice in the New Testament, once in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. And then here, uh, the interesting thing you might know is that Jesus' Hebrew name uh, is, comes from the name Joshua, same, same name. Uh, and also his, the, the name in the Greek is the same. So as the hearers of this letter, when, as this is read for the first time, and there, someone stands up to read and it says, for if Joshua had given them rest, they heard the name Jesus, right? They heard Jesus' name because in the, in the Greek, the name for Jesus and the name for Joshua is exactly the same. So there is this, obviously, emphasis here that Jesus is better, this implied emphasis that Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus is the greater Joshua. Jesus is the one who takes his people into the promised land and who gives them true eternal rest. And it's interesting at the end of Joshua chapter 21, after nine very long chapters, uh, there's, there are some, uh, if you're doing a Bible reading plan, there's some pretty tough parts of the Bible to get through. Uh, one of them is in first beginning of first Chronicles as you're reading chapters after chapters of genealogy. Uh, one of the other hard parts is uh, chapter thir 13 through 21, I think, and in Joshua, these nine long chapters describing the inheritance of the people of Israel and the allotments, all the land being divided up. And you're just reading names and places, and it's like, chapter after chapter of that. But at the very end of that, in chapter 21, 
the very end of chapter 21. Here is the summary of those nine long chapters, which is a great reminder why we got to keep reading to the end, right? We got we to stick with it. It says, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Well, what's going on here? Did the author of Hebrews misread his Old Testament? Didn't it say that the Lord gave the people of Israel rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers? Well, actually, he read his Old Testament very carefully. That's his whole point here in chapters 3 and 4, as he quotes Psalm 95, written by David many generations after that wilderness generation died off and, that, and their children settled in the promised land and had rest on every side from their enemies. The rest in Joshua 21 was not the ultimate rest for God's people. The today that is spoken of by David in Psalm 95 was a reminder to those in his day and for all of those who would come after him that the door remains open and that by faith we must enter it into God's true rest. So what is God's true rest then? Dennis Johnson in his commentary summarizes it quite helpfully. He says, the object of God's promise was his rest, a future destination of unthreatened and uninterrupted communion with God, who is already resting from his creative labors. Canaan was merely a sign pointing upward and forward to the reality of God's rest. The land promised to the patriarchs as they remained strangers and exiles on earth was not, after all, a homeland in this sin-sullied world, but rather a better country that is a heavenly one, as he quotes from Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. The understanding that God's rest is ultimately a future destination of unthreatened and uninterrupted communion with God is something that Abraham and those who are Abraham's descendants by faith have always understood. And in this season of Advent, this connection couldn't be any more important. As we mentioned earlier, Advent is both a backward-looking and a forward-looking thing. In other words, there is an already and a not yet reality. Jesus in his first advent did what no one else could do. Son of God took on human flesh. He became like us in every way except without sin. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. He died in our place as our substitute and our great high priest, which is going to be the emphasis starting in Hebrews 4:14 all the way through the end of Hebrews chapter 10. He became our high priest, died in our place rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he offers true spiritual rest to all those who walk through the open door. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Pasture means rest. Walk through that door and find rest. And we do get a foretaste of that rest on our 
on a weekly basis on our Sabbath, one out of seven days, a day for rest and a day for worshiping God. And it points us to this greater rest. Yet, we are still waiting for Jesus' second advent. We are longing for the day when he returns to judge the living and the dead. We long for the day when his kingdom will have no end. That's the reality of Hebrews 4.9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is the not yet reality of our rest. There is a Sabbath rest for the people of God that is entirely future. This word here for Sabbath rest is unique. This is the only time that it's used uh, in the New Testament. It's not used at all in the, uh, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is the only place that this word appears in the whole Bible, this word for Sabbath rest. Again, Dennis Johnson, a commentator, he points out that this adds in two ways to the idea of rest that our author has been describing since chapter three. He's been using this word rest, rest, rest. Now he introduces this entire new word or concept, Sabbath rest. He says the two things that it adds are the idea of cessation from labor, and the second is celebration of freedom and joyful communion with God in his rest. So it's a cessation from work and a celebration of freedom and joyful communion with God in his rest. Now let's be honest. Life is hard and work is hard. For most people, just providing for our basic needs, it takes a lot of work. And with increasing costs, with uncertainties about the future, this can lead to a real anti-rest reality for us. And those things are usually just external circumstances. What about our internal circumstances? What about our secret sins? What about our prone to wander hearts that are tired and weary? You might ask yourself, where is the freedom? Where is the joyful communion with God in his rest? Even this foretaste version that we're talking about here, you might say, I don't really experience that. You might be feeling like you, you just can't find that place of freedom and that place of joyful communion with the Lord. Well, I have some good news. The first is that we can experience that freedom and that joyful communion with the Lord in this life. Jesus promise that he will give us rest for our souls if we come to him is not an empty promise. This wasn't just some over-spiritualizing statement that Jesus said to make people feel better about themselves. And if you're here today, and if you have never come to Jesus for rest, if you're not a Christian, then today is the day. Come to Jesus. The door is open. He invites you to come to him. He invites you to find rest for your soul that can only be found in him. So walk through that door and find rest for your weary soul. Experience the freedom and the joyful communion with God that you have been seeking in all the wrong places in this world. And if you're here today and you are a Christian, if you have found rest for your soul in Jesus, if you have experienced true freedom from slavery to sin, if you have experienced that sweet, joyful communion with God, but your soul is weary and you feel like you've lost your way, or you just don't have the ability to keep pressing on, then you need this prodding reminder from our text, which is the second part of this good news. And it's the third and final point. 
We are to walk through the open door into God's rest by striving and obeying so that we don't fall. By striving and obeying so that we don't fall. As we're going to continue to see throughout Hebrews, these exhortations and these warnings are not empty. If there was no danger for those who have heard the good news to fall away, then we wouldn't need these warnings. And we'll be unpacking this quite a bit as we get into uh, chapter 5 and chapter 6. But we see here in verse 11, a reminder for us as the people of God. And verse 11 is actually a continuation of verse 6. So verses 7 through 10, you can actually think about just putting a big parenthesis around uh, verses 7 through 10. And the, Paul does this a lot. Uh, it happens sometimes here in Hebrews. The author will kind of make a statement and then like, oh yeah, and by the way, here's this parenthesis and then continue what he's saying. So let's read verses 6 followed by verse 11 and you'll see what I mean. Verse 6 followed by verse 11. He says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's talking about they fell by disobedience in verse 6, and then he comes around back in verse 11 and says, let's not, let's not fall by that same sort of disobedience. Let's strive to enter God's rest so that we don't fall. Again, here, this is an us versus them argument, as he's saying, don't be like those in that wilderness generation who failed to enter God's rest because of unbelief. Instead, we must strive to enter God's rest so that we don't fail. Now, it's worth taking some time here to consider what this means to strive to enter God's rest. It may sound counterintuitive, but I think it actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, we recently started watching a series of Alone. We've watched some of the seasons before, and it's been a long time since we've, we've watched it, but there was a new, newer one that came out. I won't say which one it is in case uh, I don't want to ruin it for anyone, and I don't want you to ruin it for me. Um, and I won't say the person's name, but uh, if you know the show alone, basically 10 people are dropped off somewhere in the wilderness and they're given 10 items and uh, like, you know, first aid kit and clothes and all that stuff. But 10, 10 items like they do hunting and fishing and they're trying to survive uh, for whoever can survive the longest and win a whole bunch of money. Um, but this individual, he shot a very large animal. And this is something that he does for a living when he's not on the show. And he was about two miles away from his campsite when he killed this animal. So he had to cut it up. He had to make sure that uh, the animals didn't get to it. And he had to go back two miles and, and bring it back. And he said at the end of that, that's the hardest he has ever worked in his whole life, packing out an animal. He did it for the reward of having food for months on end. He did it for the potential reward of being able to win this show and win a huge sum of cash but his striving all of that hard work that he did it was for a greater purpose he wasn't like hey i'm bored i want to cut off a you know an entire leg of this huge animal and just walk two miles with it on my shoulder because i've got nothing better to do his striving and his all of his work was for a purpose and really at the end of it uh you know in human terms there was an opportunity for rest right there was an opportunity to say man i don't have to go hunting for maybe a month because i've got all this food stored up and I can, I can potentially win this show and, you know, have all this money and have an easier life, which 
obviously don't need to explain that, but, um, but that's the promise at the end, right? I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to get, I'm going to get this thing at the end. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've worked really hard on a project, maybe some type of building project or something, you know, landscaping, something where you had to work for an entire day or, or a few days and you're physically exhausted. And at the end, you just say, oh, I'm going to sleep good tonight, right? There's this, there's this reward of rest for striving and working really hard. And there is something satisfying in this life. There's something rewarding about putting in that type of physical effort and striving after a goal and achieving it. Is it any surprise then that this type of exhortation would accompany our call to enter God's rest? But, as you might anticipate, there is a corresponding danger to that. I had an example that I was going to share uh, with you all, and I I woke up this morning feeling very unsettled. Uh, I don't, well, I know why now, but I was like, "Ah, I just don't know that I want to share that example. And went downstairs, I was going into the kitchen, we have our, our like mail holder thing, uh, right as we go into the kitchen. And I was like, saw there was some junk mail and things that need to be thrown away. And I was kind of thumbing through that. And I see this letter from some friends that we served with in China, it got stuck way in the back, didn't know it was there. It's dated November 16th. So it hasn't, we haven't had it that long, I guess. But this came from my friend, Andy, uh, Andy and Aaron Ashley. Uh, it's a, a support letter, they're just sharing about their experience about um, they, they took a three-month uh, furlough, basically. Uh, they work in Orlando. They work with the Bridges Ministry, working with international students at the University of Central Florida. And uh, he shares here a reflection of um, what, he, what he learned and what God taught him during his uh, time of, of sabbatical. He says, the fall has been so good to be able to step back and listen to the Lord. Among other things, he has shown me that part of what pushed me into burnout was a deep felt desire to find my value in ministry as Mr. Hustle. Playing football while I was in junior high and high school, my dad gave me a great piece of advice. Always hustle during practice and games. Never walk. Make sure the coaches knew that I always gave 100% so that even though I was not the most athletic, I could earn opportunities to play and succeed. This wise advice applied not only on the football field, being Mr. Hustle. Oh, sorry. This wise advice applied not only on the football field, being Mr. Hustle has been helpful in ministry as well. However, my sinful heart has subtly misapplied this principle. Because it brought success and approval, I began to find my sense of value in being Mr. Hustle rather than who God says I am in Christ. Ironically, God truly does want to grow me into a person who gives 100% in serving him. But this must flow out of who God says I already am in Christ, rather than result from my striving to build up who I am in his or others' eyes. God has used my slowing down to start bringing this misplaced trust to the surface and to call me to lean more deeply into remembering and believing my value in Christ. Thank you so much for praying for God's work in me these last few months. (laughs) It was no accident that I opened up this letter this morning. It was basically a similar thing that I was going to share kind of about my own sports experience and whatever. But I was like, you guys don't need to hear me talk about my glory days. What a great example from this guy who was, was taught in a good way, right? To give it all, to strive, to 
put 100% in when you're playing sports, but how that translated negatively into his ministry, feeling like, oh, I got to be Mr. Hustle in ministry, or I got to be Mr. Hustle or Mrs. Hustle in my Christian walk. So what does it look like then to strive in the Christian life? How can we strive appropriately? How can we strive in the way that the author of Hebrews is calling us to? This word here is used several times in the New Testament by Paul and Peter. And it's also translated as do your best or make every effort or be diligent. So is this then just a calling to pull yourself up by your bootstraps Christianity? Is our entrance into God's rest, is our walking through that open door only something reserved for those who have the most tenacity, only for Mr. Hustles like my buddy Andy? Let's turn to 2 Peter for some help with this. Hebrews and the book of James, 1st and 2nd Peter, just a couple books after Hebrews. If you got the Pew Bible, that's about 16 pages forward, page 1018. to go here because I think this is a great example of what it means to strive as a Christian. Let's start in chapter 1 in verse 3. Peter says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So it's all grace. It's God's power that has done it. It is his spirit at work in us that allows us to strive to live the Christian life. It doesn't begin with our own effort. So we need to see that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. For this reason, look at verse 5. For this very reason, because his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, make every effort. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews 4.11 for strive. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Again, it's the same word for strive. Therefore, brothers and sisters, because of what God has done for us, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Same idea of not falling that we saw in Hebrews 4.11. Verse 11, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will get home. We will get 
to God's perfect eternal rest. This is how we do it. Why is this so important to Peter as he's writing here? It's because he's about to die. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Peter is about to die. He's about to lose his life. He's about to go home. And what does he want to leave them with? says that he will make, look at verse 15. He says, I will make every effort. Again, it's the same word for strive. I will strive so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter is striving. He's going out of his way so that when he's gone, they'll remember these things and they'll apply them to their lives and they'll pass them on to others. All of this for Peter goes back to verse 3. It's all from God. As we look back on what he has done for us and all that he has, it, it, it is all, sorry. As we look back on what he has done for us, it all, ha- all that he has done has the future destination of unthreatened and uninterrupted communion with God in mind as we look forward in hope. Look then with me one more verse, 2 Peter 3.11. Turn there as we see another reminder of what our lives in this world ought to look like as we wait for Jesus' second coming. I'm going to read verses 11 to 13. He's talking about the, the, the earth and the stars um, passing away here since all these things are thus to be dissolved what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of god because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn but according to his promise we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells this is our true inheritance through faith in christ which is better than any earthly plot of land, no matter how flowing with milk and honey it may be. And Peter reminds us finally in verse 14, he says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent. Again, same word, strive, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. It's all by grace. It's all by the power of God's spirit. And I can't think of a much better application of all of this than what we are about to experience as we come to this table. We don't approach this table this morning because in and of ourselves, we have strived hard enough or because we are without spot or blemish on our own. We approach this table because Jesus has strived for us because he has laid down his life for us, because he has opened up the door for us to enter into God's rest. He is the reason that we can be found without spot or blemish. He is our peace. If you have trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation, if you have confessed your sins and acknowledged that there is no door of entry into God's rest except through Jesus, then this table is for you. 
You are to come. You are to commune. But if you are not there yet, if you say, I, I'm not sure if I really believe in all of this, I, I have not entered through that door. Of, I have not walked through the door of faith and entered into God's rest. Then we would ask that you would remain in your seat and not uh, take the elements. We would love to talk to you a little bit more about what it means to be a Christian, but know that you are welcome here um, and we're glad you're, you're with us.